episode 452 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with Andrew Swafford. And in today's episode, we're going to be uh, continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1930s All Quiet on the Western Front, which personally, I'm, I've, I was the one like putting this on the ballot every year. So I'm just glad that we've now forced ourselves to watch it and the people to listen to it. So yeah. sign off on I'm me. I'm glad to have finally watched it. Thank you for uh, insisting yeah. that it is a great movie worthy of our attention. Um, but uh, in part one, we're going to be, we're pro- we're really going to be sticking to one movie, which quite honestly, we kind of did to a degree last week with Sp- the last episode with Spider-Verse, but we're really going to stick to one movie with this one. And uh, as they say, you might uh, sneak in a little pairing. Yeah, it, by it the pairs end of part with it. So I'm, it's, it's fine. We, we literally talked about Spider-Verse and a Nicole Hofsinner uh, comedy, <laughs> so it, it, it didn't pair as well. Um, yeah. Unless Nicole Hofstetter wants to write a Spider-Man movie, which I'd be into. I don't want any more directors than are already stuck in the Marvel no, no, no. machine not, to become like, stuck in the Marvel machine. It's not like a Marvel thing. It's like it's the Nicole Hofstetter movie, and it's like Peter Parker's like you know, in his mid forties, is you know questioning things, having a midlife crisis. It's a uh, it's friends with money, but your friend who has money is uh, <laughs> uh, the Green Goblin. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Um, no, we're gonna we're gonna take me down to Asteroid City. So uh, we're gonna talk about Asteroid City, the latest Wes Anderson movie, which uh, just recently came out. It got a big uh, big response out of Cannes, um, but it has now been released theatrically. Um, this one it is set in a fictional American desert town, circa 1955 where the junior stargazer space cadet convention is happening it's organized to bring together students and parents from across the country for fellowship and scholarly competition Um, but it is disrupted by world-changing events Um, among the this has to be one of his like more like robust like star-studded cast and that's tough to say now at this point but like there's also a lot of heavy like usually there's a there's a pretty strong cast but like there's a lot of heavy hitters in this like tom hanks is in this movie which i feel like that's puts, true um steve carell steve carell's well. in people it. that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be in a wes anderson movie yeah a bunch of new faces brian cranston's in his first one but like a lot of heavy is this the first uh, scarlett johansson wes anderson film no she had, she did a voice i believe in, oh isle of dogs can, was in Isle of Dogs, but you can, y'all can fact check me. I'm pretty sure though she did a voice in Isle of Dogs. Mm-hmm. I think you're um, right. But this is her first time like on screen. Um, but there's a bunch of you know before we get into it, there's a bunch of different kind of. I think the main the main storyline that you're following is Jason Schwartzman's character, who's for all intents and purposes the lead. He's a war photographer whose wife has just recently died. Well, not recently, like three weeks ago, but he has not told his kids yet, um, which is has like a nice little comedy to the beginning of the movie. Um, his father-in-law, played by Tom Hanks, um, is supposed to come and meet them because their car is broken down. They're in Asteroid City where this uh, convention is. His one son, uh, who's... <laughs> I forgot what his actual name is, but his nickname is Brainiac. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, it's his Woodrow. His name is Wood, uh, Woodrow, which I thought his name was is very Woodrow, weird because I only think of is... Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, that's an, that's very unfortunate. But yeah, Woodrow, <laughs> um, but his nickname is Brainiac, uh, is part of this convention, and but he has three young daughters, and so Tom Hanks' character is coming to pick up the daughters, and they're going to, after this convention happens, going to go and live with him for a time as they kind of re, re-collect their life. Um, 
among the other people, you have Scarlett Johan- uh, Johansson, who is playing uh, a movie starlet who's uh, who also has a daughter in this convention. Um, other people who have kids in the convention include uh, Liev Schreiber, uh, Stephen Park, um, uh, and then you have uh, folks who are just like working in the town, including Steve Carell, Matt Dillon. You have Maya Hawk playing a teacher who has the number of students who are coming to this convention. Um, and then you have, uh, this is kind of where it starts to get kind of tough to explain the movie because all of the, all of this that I've just described is actually a play called Asteroid City. And the movie, um, the framing device that you're introduced to the movie with is that you're watching a television program that's hosted by Brian Cranston's character that is a television program about the making of the play with the play being Asteroid City. So you have a story within a story within a story. Wait, is it um, a story the, within a story within a story or is it a story within a story? It's a story within a story within a story. What's the third one? Uh, it's it's television program, the story that you're watching, that, that, that's inside the television program, oh, and then... And the movie we're watching. And the, the, the thing that's in the television program, for all intents and purposes, is like how the movie was, or how the, right. how the play came about, and then the play. Mm-hmm. Um... But I guess it could be also a story within a story. I don't know. It's still, it's still, it's on. To be fair, it's a little confusing to get into it, like right off the yeah. gate. But um, I don't know if it ever registered to me that I was watching a television program as opposed to a movie about the play. Um, it might be. I don't know. It's very. It's it's a bit convoluted at the beginning. You kind of have to jump on its wavelength. Um, but in like the television in the television program of the play, you're also introduced to characters such as Edward Norton, who is the playwright. Adrian Brody, who's directing the play, um, and uh, and then a lot of the other the other uh, actors are played by the same people, like Jason Sh- uh, Schwartzman and Scarlett Johansson and people like that. So, um, but yeah, so this is uh, this is what you know. This is West's. He's kind of getting a little prolific at the moment. But what did you uh, what did you make and uh, Andrew of? I was going to call you Asteroid. What did you make <laughs> Asteroid of Asteroid City? <laughs> You know, I feel like my people were being represented well. Um, no, I liked Asteroid City well enough. Um, it's probably not one of my favorite um, Wes Anderson movies, um, but I've not been super hot on his recent run since Grand Budapest Hotel. French Dispatch was um, kind of just bounced right off of me. Um, Isle of Dogs got such abysmal reviews that i i didn't watch it <laughs> but honestly i i've seen it twice now and i really don't remember much of it yeah uh, and this one i think is the one that i like the most uh of of the two that i've seen of his recent movies um it is much more of a straightforwardly wes anderson movie than the french dispatch was that one was really structurally ambitious it was kind of an anthology film that had like a animated sequence in it um and 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 all this like intertextual stuff going on. Um, this one still has that framing device that you're talking about, Zach. Um, but it's it's still pretty, you know, that it is focused on the the central narrative at hand. Um, I 
I don't know how much I love the the narrative itself. Um, it feels like a lot of Wes Anderson tropes on one level, and um, the the MacGuffin that kind of keeps the plot rolling about this UFO and an alien who wants to take an asteroid back um, didn't really feel super impactful to me. Um, but I did like a lot of the acting and a lot of the character work, and I thought that the the script was pretty funny throughout. Um, my my thought about the um, the framing device and how that's working in the movie, um, maybe not particularly revelatory because I think this is kind of like on the surface of the text of the movie. It seems like it is Wes Anderson kind of explaining himself to a certain extent, um, explaining um, why he makes movies um, the way he does um, that are so um, artificial looking and uh, like flat with all these these characters who just kind of uh, uh, deliver their lines with with such a deadpan affect um, this movie involves several characters who are um, dealing with some really difficult uh, emotional stuff um, but who don't really um, know how to express it just you know face to face with other people um, and so they they kind of use their work or they use their art uh, to try to process it um, in some way um, and you see that um, with the the characters played by Ed Norton and both and Andrea and Brody who are both kind of like on the outside of the frame story um, they they say things more or less to that effect and you also can see this with um, the Scarlett Johansson character and the um, Jason Schwartzman character in, like inside the movie so if you are invested in like Wes Anderson as an artist and kind of uh, trying to figure out how he works on a psychological level um, I think that it's interesting on that level um i don't know if this is gonna really play to people who aren't super aware of who wes anderson is um because i think it does require a certain amount of knowledge of, of the context in which this movie is coming um but i also wonder if like you're gonna like this movie um if if you're new to wes anderson because you know, when I list off my favorite Wes Anderson movies, which are like Fantastic Mr. Fox, Moonrise Kingdom, Grand Budapest Hotel, those were like the Wes Anderson movies that came out when I was sort of coming of age and, and becoming a cinephile. Um, and he is such a gateway drug director for a lot of people. You know, the, um, the craft and um, the artistic choices are just so out there. Um, and, and, and on the surface in your face that um, if you've never seen a movie like this before, um, it can really um, like open some doors for you. Um, so I, I do think that, you know, it's possible that even if you don't know that much about um, Wes Anderson as a director, um, that just the style, like the pop of this movie may be enough uh, to grab you. But, you know, there is more um, to uh, explore there if you have like a, a lot of knowledge of uh, the guy's career yeah um i got three things uh one i think i differ with you a little bit i find i found this framing device to be a little bit tougher to get into than the french dispatch is a little is a little wonky but i i found it to be still more straightforward as like a, and we talked about this when it came out like as a you know story a story b story c like it's very it's kind of you know it's kind of one of those 
you know, I think Michael, I remember Michael talking about it, like, you know, you might like A and B and C doesn't do anything for me, but it's, it's very like, you know, it's segmented into different things while this one is a little bit more, a little bit more complex. Um, cause it's doing some, it's doing some different things. It's not, you know, I agree, not completely off of like Wes Anderson's sphere, but, um, just a little bit different. The, um, the second thing I was thinking about with this one, this is, uh, probably, I mean, honestly, I think since as far back as like Rushmore and um, Bottle Rocket, this is his, his most American movie that he's made in a very long time. A lot of his recent stuff has felt has been I've enjoyed it, but has felt very like you know he's he's living in Europe, like he's very like European focus you know or like um inspired at this point like and I, I think you, dogs is very japanese for better or worse yeah yeah for better or worse that's you know more japanese you know he's he's the the guy went on a kurosawa kick or something one week um but i mean like grand budapest steve zisu um french dispatch uh, i mean a lot of these a lot of, a lot of these feel even even fantastic mr fox feels like they feel very like european influenced and this one to me immediately i was like this is really fascinating because this is the most for somebody who doesn't seem all that interested in america this is like his most american movie and it felt very harkened back to like his early days making making movies out of texas Mm, um and it's not just and it's not just the landscape but like but just kind of um what he's kind of exploring with the characters um you know you you do have like this you, you think about it it's taking place in the 50s this is, you know, post fifty five. So you you got kind of post World War Two, pre Vietnam, just kind of this. Uh, this a lot of them are very like I'm American idyllic. You know, the 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 Jason Schwartzman character is is kind of fighting that American ideal. But you look at like his father in law, the Tom Hanks character, who literally has a golf course like where he lives. Um, a lot of the families kind of coming in are very buttoned up, like American American families. Um, Steve Carell is so, like selling real estate out yeah, in you, the west. Yeah, you have these re- you have these really clever like little bits where yeah, like he has all, he has a gazillion uh uh like um uh con- like machines that you know you normally like have a, there's like a coke machine and there's a snack machine. He has one that sells real estate and they're just like little plots of land and it's and there's like this there's this scene with Liev Schreiber that's just really funny. Um, where that he's talking about selling the land. Um, the third thing is on like I, I I really like the movie, but it's easily the most inscrutable Wes Anderson movie I've I've for me personally since probably Steve Zissou, which is another movie that I've appreciated over time as I've watched it and kind of understood the wavelength that it's on. But it's but initially was very like. Uh, like I, it was unreadable for me. Hmm. Um, this like one, on a thematic level, like you're not sure what you're supposed yeah. to be thinking about. Yeah, like in this one, like this one, I'm like I'm not, I'm not so sure what I'm supposed to be thinking about because yeah, like there definitely are the Wes Anderson tropes. So you have like the dead wife, you have the the kind of characters in flux. You kind of you have you know the the way the the the, the dictation how they're talking. Um, you have all these different things that you're familiar with, but you know, I'm getting through the movie and I'm going like where it, 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 one, it just doesn't, it didn't have that emotional landing that, you know, you think of like grand Budapest movie, which is, 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 you know, has all this stuff kind of 
you know, you're thinking about all this kind of stuff, and it has just that thud emotional ending that just kind of rips your heart out. The same with stuff like Fantastic Mr. Fox um, and Rushmore. Like, it, like it just has that emotional. You know, the thing that I talk about with people who maybe don't like Wes Anderson is like, yeah, he's got he he's he's doing his thing, but like it's not for nothing. Like he does do it to like pull out this emotional um, through line, and that and this one. I just, I, it was, it, I was just kind of, I, I'm like, I, I, I kind of was going like, what's, where is this leading to? Um, a lot of the parts I like and a lot of the parts I'm following and a lot of, a lot of the parts I'm enjoying, but I, 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 I'm the, the path forward is very hazy for me. Yeah. I would say that Wes Anderson's movies have gotten less and less directly emotional as his career has gone on. Like if you go back to something like the Royal Tenenbaums, like that is a, a fairly raw movie about just like family dysfunction. Um, Darjeeling Limited is, you know, a movie about grief. And I would say that this movie is also a movie about grief, but it's coming at it from such a different angle due to the place that Wes Anderson is at in his career at this point. Well, I also think that's why I mentioned it feels like this and that's why another reason why I was like, this is the most American movie he's made in a long time. And I think I, it's one that like, I I really want to reserve a lot of judgment for a rewatch going in, going, I know I, again, it's like Zisu. I know what, I know what he's doing. He, I, I kind of understand what he's doing here. I need to come in with that frame of mind ahead of time. Um, because like I said, it's this, it's 1955. It's like this American style of, you know, you constantly kind of think they're gonna get to this part, you know, and you have parts like with the the mother in the in the in the Tupperware. Um, you have you have all you know, these different pieces where you're like, oh, this is gonna kind of lead to that moment when it really just activates. And it's almost like he's, you know, it's 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 almost like he's kind of going like we like this stagnated American, like we're like we're just like they're just unable, they're inhibited to do that, and that's why when I kind of started thinking about that late in the movie, that really clicked the whole story within the story because it's you know almost to me, and I don't think that this is how he was necessarily trying to do it, but I'm like. To me, I like, and and this kind of goes into the movie I can talk about a little bit later, Close Encounters, because this is definitely what the, the what this is working on. But, um, it I kind of the way I was viewing it was the asteroid city. You can like it was a play or what you can say it was a play, but it was something that actually happened. Like it was like in in, in the play and everything else. That's the like the framing device outside of it, is just is just how do we how are we going to process this like kind of a quarantine movie too because all the people in the in the titular asteroid city uh get stuck there and are not allowed to leave by united states mandate and like they they have a lot of processing of that uh to do um yeah I mean, you, you hit that point late in the movie where, like, Jason Schwartzman, like, leaves the play to go to talk to Adrian Brody and is like, what, what is my character doing? Like, what's, what's going on? Um, you know, and I, and I think that's what kind of started to click with me is it's just, like, I didn't get so, so I kind of let go of, like, the holdup of the different and trying to follow the different framing devices and kind of viewed it as this this moment of, of trauma, you know, grief and trauma for like the Jason Schwartzman family, you know, family who lost their mother and their wife. Um, but also just like this, the nature, you know, he, he presents it in such a quirky way, but like, 
I don't think we know how we would really react and be able to process if like an alien just came down and like again just like grabbed the thing and went back up like i don't know how like we would be able to mentally process that and it gets it shows a little bit of that like when the government's like trying to like uh check in on you know like uh quarantine and like check in on the people you know immediately after the thing but that's i guess that's where that's where my head at was at when i was kind of trying to process this movie and i i don't know necessarily if that's what he was going for but again like I think that kind of came out of just very recently watching Close Encounters, which is also a movie about how how, how trying to process trauma. Right. Um, And I'm I'm curious to hear your Close Encounters thoughts, but here's a thought that I had in response to something you said, Zach. There, in the framing device, um, you often see people rehearsing and kind of talking about things that are going to happen in the the play within the movie later on down the line. And um, one thing that gets discussed is Jason Schwartzman's character uh, burns his hand on an, a stovetop, and uh, he's asked why he did that. And in the framing device, he says something along the lines of like, well, I needed a, a reason to be crying, like an excuse for why I'm crying right now. And then um, the, the Wes Anderson character played by Ed Norton is like, no, probably better not to say that probably better just to leave it implied and then later on in the movie when you get to that moment when jason swartzman does burn his hand he doesn't say that line but you know that there's meant to be you know an unspoken emotion there because it has been spoken earlier in the movie and that seems to be a moment of wes henderson kind of showing his hand and and explaining like you know all of these small uh, character moments that may just seem um, like you know one-off quirks um, are probably uh, hiding some uh, uh, you know deep well of feeling that the characters don't really know how to express or aren't aren't comfortable expressing. Uh, there's even a moment where Scarlett Johansson says to uh, the Jason Schwartzman character, like, "You and I are very similar people because um, we are dealing with a lot of difficult emotions that we don't like talking about." And then he says can we change the subject <laughs> which is very funny uh but um yeah i mean i i don't really know what else to do with it other than um you know say that you know this this is wes anderson explaining like you know i i make these movies that seem kind of like light and frivolous but there is more going on underneath the surface if you're willing to look at them yeah I think that's a good transition to Close Encounters, which we can kind of just still loop in the other movie with it, um, which I watched uh, last week. And um, <laughs> it took me forever to finally watch this. I don't know why. It's, you know, you got Spielberg. It's one of his early ones. It's pretty well, well beloved. Um, but I had seen people kind of compare Asteroid City to this. Um and so, for those those unfamiliar, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, it came out in 1977, two years after Jaws. Um, and it stars Richard Dreyfuss, uh, Terry Garr, Bob Balaban, and Francois Truffaut. Um, and it's about this uh, one night in, um, oh, where are they? Is it Indiana or Iowa? Midwest. Um, they encounter these UFOs. They encounter these UFOs. And so, um, a lot of people are like for lack of a better word, like touched by them. Um, uh, Richard Dreyfuss' character works as a line worker. And so the power goes out when these things come and he has to leave and is like driving, trying to find these down, you know, trying to find different 
things that he can help with power lines and things like that and he gets lost and then is like sitting there at a stop and again like i know like spielberg man such a great director you have this wonderful moment where he's sitting at the at the train track stop and a car comes up behind him and honks and he kind of waves them and like they go around and then these other lights come like you see the lights come down and go behind him he does the same thing and then he's not abducted by the up by the ufo but it like it kind of like jars him. It like it, it starts playing with all the gears, starts turning stuff off. Everything is kind of going crazy. This bright red light shines on, and honestly, it's such an amazing moment because it's all practical. It's kind of terrifying because he's just there. You don't it's you don't see anything in the car. You just see this blinding red light, and it, the car is just shaking uncontrollably, and then it goes away and it's gone. Um, and that happens to a lot of people. Uh, and so afterwards, like he has just like this intense red tan line and all the people who are also kind of touched by the aliens have the same thing. Um, and so the rest of the movie is just him literally going insane. Um, some people, you know, I think there's a little bit of it kind of like breaking away from the, again, it's, it's kind of a little bit of a nuclear family uh, story. So breaking away from that nuclear family mold, um, but also, to, again, like I feel like it'd be an insanely traumatic experience to have a UFO come, and not not just for the people who are like have been like um, touched by these by by the ships and like you know had, had these like tr- these moments, but just having you the the existence of UFOs in general, I think would be in like confirmed would be a very traumatic incident for for humans like to comprehend life outside of ourselves um and so so to me it's just like his descent into madness is is also just like him trying to like form like process some like through this form of trauma and uh, you know it comes with him kind of you know i I saw a lot of uh, writing about how you know it it, it, one of the kind of radical things is you have the dad kind of leaving behind the family it's not the mom leaves and they have to kind of it's the dad he like he like he leaves not not to spoil a movie from 1977 but like he he ends up going on on you know they they have this team of people who they kind of trade off with the aliens they like the people who have been abducted for many many years up to this come back and then they tra- they like send this team with the aliens and richard Dreyfus is among them he just completely leaves his family and and goes um and it's this and to me it's kind of this movie of just like processing processing just these traumatic like incomprehensible events because like there's no there's no book or game plan to like how to do this. You know, um, it's all, everything happening afterwards is just the kind of, is just the government trying to do everything they can to like quell the whole thing. Um, but then you also have like the uh, Francois Truffaut, who is this, um, I guess, alien scientist. Like that's kind of, he's just chasing the aliens. Um, and Bob Balaban, who is playing his interpreter, who are are kind of just on this quest to like understand what's going on and it's a really it's honestly a super strange movie i can't like it's it's crazy to me that spielberg goes two years after jaws the the it starts the blockbusters this just this massive hit and then and then makes this movie which honestly for the first two acts of it is 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 just scatterbrained yeah. it's just like you would think that it like, would be just kind of a straightforward blockbuster about aliens 
like ET it, kind of is. I mean, it is. is it's, but it has it has inter- You know, it has it has all the inner like the action, the entertainment, like just those those Spielberg moments that keep you like propelled in it. But it's also just a, like if you look look at it, it's super meandering. It's just a lot of it is is Terry Gar and the family getting mad at at Richard Dreyfus as he's like because he keeps seeing this image in his head and it's just he's just like trying to find like he's building it in the mashed potatoes he's building it out of like uh shaving cream he finally when they leave the house like is throwing dirt and plants inside the house and literally building like a diorama of what he's seen in his head like he goes full crazy it's great yeah um i remember most vividly just two things about that movie one of them is the finale sequence and the other is the mashed potato mountain yeah which honestly another thing i was thinking about is like post fablemans this is a fascinating movie to watch because yeah because the the you have him going mad which is it's a it's it's a over dramatized version of like what you see with his mother and father that's that's you know depicted narratively in the fablemans but it's not completely off you know you kind of have like this this tearing away of the mother father structure and he has these incredible shots of the kids he has one where richard dreyfus is just like it like lying in the tub just pouring water on himself because he's just una- like he's just unable to like he, he's just this thing is just completely stuck in his head and terry gar's yelling at him and the kid comes in and the and the oldest son starts yelling at him too going you know you're a coward you're a coward you're a coward and like it has this scene where like finally she moves him out and the kid goes back in the room and like turns and is like crying and like the door's shut um and so you, you kind of have, like, just thinking back to the Fablemans, you kind of have like this this family kind of ripping apart and the kids kind of catching the shrap, shrapnel of all of it, which is fascinating because this is also the first movie um, and, to, and then the next one would be AI that Spielberg wrote all by himself, like that solo writing credit. Um, oh, wow, I didn't know that. And so it's kind of interesting thinking about Asteroid City as a movie with like Wes Anderson, like kind of processing how like how he's a like what he's doing and like uh how he's processing the filmmaking process because to a degree this is similar now this is only his um this is the second biggest movie it's not a second movie ever but it's you know but it's somebody who had been in the business you know making stuff for a while so he wasn't some you know you know, it wasn't some nobody. It was something like he had been making stuff. Jaws was the was the biggest hit that he had, and then he made this. Um, but it, it feels very personal, and it feels very personal. Um, and it's kind of interesting. You know, Wes Anderson's been around even long longer to this point, um, and so he's not young. Kind of trying to like process all this stuff. This one feels very much like a young, a young writer director like working through some stuff. Um, but it's also just this fascinating movie to me of like, like how, like how, how like disturb, like not, well, not disturbing, but just kind of just, just un, uncalculable, like processing grief is. Cause that's what a lot of this movie is processing grief and trauma. Like this thing happened to them. They don't understand why it happened to them. And they're just trying to find some sort of answer and they're unable to really find it until you get to this fight, the, the final act. Um, which is amazing the final sequence of close encounters is so amazing so good it's so you have the you have like the back and forth music playing between the ufo and the this machine that they have the, the communication it's so good 
Which, to tie it back into Asteroid City again, um, feels like it's expressing this similar idea of, like, communicating through art when you don't necessarily have the words to say what you need to say. Um, that's kind of what Steven Spielberg is doing in the movie, and that's also what um, the alien and Richard Dreyfuss's character are doing back and forth during the finale. Um, but in, in such a, a, like, stunning, evocative way. Um. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. if uh, I waited too long. If you have not seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind, it's pretty great. Um, I mean, the dude can direct. <laughs> I, I Hell, I haven't watched... I watched last night, like, because I'm, you know, cause, uh, Indiana Jones... The new Indiana Jones movie is coming out. So I was like, you know what? Let's watch Crystal Skull again, since that seems to be the ire of the internet. It's not that bad of a movie, y'all. The first two acts of it is like some is like pure like full adrenaline Spielberg action. It's fucking great. Um, like the second, the third act gets a little the that alien portion is not is not it does not carry the close encounters. <laughs> it gets a little wonky, and you and you're also like fighting because George Lucas helped uh, help write the movie, and so you have like this like retro futurism of George Lucas in the writing battling the like classicism of steven spielberg's directing it's kind of crazy um i don't feel like we like paid enough attention to that when it came out but um dude 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 knows how to direct and close encounters i think is a really i think i i you know it is it's it's super meandering for the two the first two acts but i i feel like there's a lot of interesting bits and it's it's circulated around the richard dreyfus character he's very very good in this movie um and also it's you know and also a uh, another you know like asteroid city like a like a great like semi anti anti government anti establishment um movie that's spielberg people don't give i mean he, he's been a little bit less on that lately he he got older and was kind of you know like oh well, i like some government but early on he's like fuck the government so um but yeah close encounters um I found it on the web, but uh, it's uh, it's you can probably find close. Go to Walmart. You can go find close encounters. Um, but uh, <laughs> Asteroid City, it's in theaters now. Um, it's in, I mean, as I told, I was telling my parents who were gonna go see it. I was like, yeah, I mean, Wes Anderson's like a known name at this point. Like it'll be in regular theaters. It's not. It's not like some. I went and saw it at the art house theater here, but like for the but it was also playing in like the multiplex theaters because people know who Wes Anderson is. Right. And, you know, we don't have that many uh, household name auteurs. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that, that he's doing it. As I always say about Wes, you know, if you don't like him, that's fine. But, like, he's going to, like, I, I, like, you have to at least respect he's going to do his thing the way he wants to do it. And, like, that's just, like, you don't, you, you, you don't get many directors who are just, like, fully committed to their bit, um, whether you like it or not. Like, there's some who you know i'm not super into the bit but at least they're doing it you know we want some of that rather than just you know not to not, anonymous product like movie that stars ryan reynolds so you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> um all right well, we're gonna take a quick break and we're gonna get real real anti-establishment <laughs> in part two with all quiet on the western front
And we're back with part two of episode 452 of Cinematary. In this part, we're going to be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1930s All Quiet on the Western Front. Directed by Lewis Milestone from a script by Maxwell Anderson and George Abbott. And based on the novel of the same name by Eric Maria Remark. Uh, the film follows a group of German schoolboys talked into a, enlisting at the beginning of World War I by their jingoistic teacher. The story is told entirely through the experiences of the young German recruits and highlights the tragedy of war through the eyes of individuals. A great number of German army veterans were living in Los Angeles at the time of filming and were recruited as bit players and technical advisors. Around 2,000 extras were utilized during production. Among them was future director Fred Zinnemann, who was fired for impudence, which <laughs> I thought was kind of funny. Um, the film was shot with two cameras side by side, with one negative edited as, sound, as a sound film and the other edited as an international sound version for distribution in non-English speaking areas. Which, just a quick aside, like the jazz singer, which we did in the last episode, 1927, this is three years later. And how goddamn advanced is this thing already? Yeah, that's so true. I didn't think about that. I was thinking about that just in the beginning parts when like they're doing the basic training and like just the sound of like the 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 boots on the ground, the mud, the stuff like that, the voices. The explosions. Yeah, and I'm just the like this is literally dropping. just 3 years after the jazz singer where we're we're sometimes not lining up the singing properly, you know? It's just crazy. Um Noted comedian Zazu Pitts was originally cast as Paul's mother and completed the film, but preview audiences used to used to seeing her in comedic roles laughed when she appeared on screen, so Milestone reshot her scenes with Burl Mercer before the film was released. The preview audience remains the only one who saw only ones who saw Pitts in the role, although she does appear for about 30 seconds in the film's original preview trailer. In the film, Paul is shot while reaching for a butterfly. This scene is different from the book and was inspired by an earlier scene showing a butterfly collection in Paul's home. The scene was shot during the editing phase, so the actors were no longer available, and Milestone had to use his own hand as Paul's. Due to its anti-war and perceived anti-German messages, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party opposed the film. During and after its German premiere in Berlin on December 4th, 1930, Nazi brown shirts under the command of Joseph Goebbels uh, disrupted the viewings by setting off stink bombs, throwing sneezing powder in the air, and releasing white mice in the theaters, eventually escalating to attacking audience members perceived to be Jewish and forcing projectors to shut down. They repeatedly yelled out Juden film, or Jewish film, while doing this. Goebbels wrote about one such disruption in his personal diary saying quote within 10 minutes the cinema resembled a madhouse the police are powerless the embittered crowd takes over takes out its anger on the Jews the first breakthrough in the west Jews out Hitler is standing at the gates the police sympathize with us the Jews are small and ugly the box office outside is under siege window panes are broken thousands of people enjoy the spectacle The the screening is abandoned as is the next one we have won the newspapers are full of our protests but not even the berliner tagblatt dares to call us names the nation is on our side in short victory yikes do you know if the the nazis did other like public uh uh, protest feels like the wrong word but uh acts of terrorism maybe um in movie theaters were there other movies that were the target of their ire not 
not anything that comes to mind. They, they they got much more, especially with with Ufa, like were quicker to just ban the like they just wouldn't allow it. Right, but this is before um, they had the power to do that. Th- this is before they came into like full power. So like this, I was so the Nazi campaign was successful, and German authorities outlawed the film on December eleventh, nineteen thirty. A heavily cut version was briefly allowed in nineteen thirty one before the Nazis came to power in nineteen thirty three, and the film was outlawed again. The film was finally re released in Germany on April twenty fifth, nineteen fifty two, in the Capitol Theater in West. Berlin. Between 1930 and 1941, this was one of many films to be banned in Victoria, Australia, on the ground of pacifism by the chief censor Cresswell O'Reilly. However, it was said to enjoy, quote, a long and successful run in other states, though the book was banned nationally. The film was also banned in Italy and Austria in 1931, with the prohibition officially raised only in in the 1980s and in France up to 1963. The original international sound version of the film, lasting 152 minutes, was first shown in Los Angeles on April 21st, 1930, and premiered in New York on April 25th, 1930. Uh, On its initial release, Variety wrote, The League of Nations could make no better investment than to buy up the master print, reproduce it in every language, to be shown in all the nations until the the word war is taken out of the dictionaries. Um, the New York Daily News in 1930 said, All Quiet on the Western Front depicts a war which is wild, mad, raging with fight. Universal's audible screen production of uh, Eric Maria Remarque's uh, sensational bestseller is so magnificent, so powerful, that it hardly behooves mere words to tell of its heart-rendering appeal or its dramatic fire, its breathtaking battle shots in which men stab and kill each other for the glory of war. It is not only a great motion picture because because it has been built firmly and consistently upon the plot of a great book, its smack of uh, directorial genius, nothing short of this, sensitive performances by a marvelous cast, and the most remarkable camera work which has been performed on either silent or, or sound screen roundabout <laughs> round the Hollywood studios. Um... On that note, let's talk a little bit about All Quiet on the Western Front, which I, you know, just, uh, just, you know, kind of echoing that, um, it was a technical marvel in 1930. Um, For those who have not seen it and maybe are interested, it looks just as good now in 2023 as it does in 1930. Like, I watched it, they have a really, really nice print of it on archive.org, and it is... and it's it's a real, it's stunning, um, and not only just the... uh, the war sequences, um, just just the just you know even the small sequences where like they're walking through um, you know the trenches or they're walking in no man's land stuff like that um, to the point where Spielberg actually said a lot of this movie inspired how he approached um, battle sequences and uh, Saving Private Ryan. Right. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, yeah, I agree. Like technically, um, this movie is very impressive, especially for a movie that came out in 1930. Um, you know, compare it again to the jazz singer, which is just so uh, like unambitious cinematically. It's just shots of people talking to each other, right? Um, the the way that the war sequences get shot in this are pretty harrowing. Um, there were two in particular that really stand out to me. Um, one is this montage sequence that is cutting back and forth between 
um, you watching like a soldier feeding um, bullets into a machine gun um, while that is intercut with like these lateral tracking shots uh, throughout the uh, the war zone and what's interesting to me about that sequence is that it does not follow any sort of hero or character right it, it's it's not about it's not like 1917 where you're kind of like living the the third person shooter video game of this character's life it's just this blast of here's how scary and intense this would have been to experience um and another another sequence that stands out to me in that regard is um um right after um, one of the central soldiers has died. Um, there's a conversation between um, them and several characters about uh, somebody who wants to take their boots. Like right when they find out this person's not going to make it or right when they find out this person has lost their leg, they say, well, can I have your boots then? Um, and the character ends up getting the this person's boots, um, sees this person die, um, and they, they're like holding on to these boots is so melancholy for them. And then the next um, several shots are just like close-ups on first like these boots and then like the boots of lots of soldiers um, as they are like marching into battle um, kind of enthused um, and like one character even says like oh man I'm, I'm happy to go to war in, in boots as nice as these uh, but like you see people just kind of get gunned down over and over uh, regardless of what they're wearing you know <laughs> is it is it Oh, okay. I thought it was because, so the guy, it, it starts with the guys talking about the boots at the beginning. Cause he's like, my uncle gave these to me. Aren't they great? And he's like kind of bragging about it. And then, yeah, he loses his leg and eventually dies. And so the guy takes the guy, t- the, the next guy takes the boots and then he died. I thought it was like people kept like, it was almost like a cursed boot. Like they kept like get, handing them to more people. And every time like the person would just, you know. Um, would be killed but yeah i mean that that, uh, that makes i think that makes a little bit Maybe. more sense I, I, guess. I don't know you could be right but i just really liked the uh the artistic decision to show us these battle sequences from like the knee down um like especially in 1930 when like the war yeah. picture is not really like this super codified thing um, like American movies have only been trying to make big spectacles like this for a little over a decade. Um, and it, it was just a, a neat trick, a neat camera trick uh, to see them pull off. Yeah, so this is, I talked about it a little bit at the beginning. I've been really pushing to watch this for a while because it was really, I, I, I when I, the first time I watched this, it was kind of one of those, what the fuck is this? This is a like, like kind of, this isn't an incredible movie type thing because I mean, it's, it, it's not, it, it's not coded. It's not hidden. Like it's, it's very blatantly anti-war. Like, like there's multiple conversations in the few, and where the soldiers are talking about the futility of the whole thing. There's a great sequence where, um, so you have, when they get, once they get, uh, for I guess to kind of to, for those who are unfamiliar, you start you start the movie for the first twenty five or so minutes where the kids uh, the kids really are like 
you know, the, the teacher's just like, you got to go and serve the, the, the motherland. You know, we got to win this war. We're going to do this for Germany. And they got all jacked up. And so, the, and then they go through, they go through basic training. They get a little bit of kind of like, a, oh, this is going to be different than we thought. Like, you know, they have this great sequence where they're sitting in the classroom and they're like, you know, thinking about the parades and how people are going to perceive them afterwards. And then they get to, they get to boot camp and it's great because not only, does it switch from like that fantasy of what they were seeing when they were in the classroom? But you also had, you meet him very briefly at the beginning, the mailman who, who is coming out. Who's, who he's telling, um, he's telling this guy, yeah, like, you know, because of the war, I'm kind of coming out of the reserve to be a sergeant. And so he's kind of like the friendly neighborhood, you know, male person, but then he's the drill sergeant at, you know, when they get to, uh, they get to boot camp and they're all just like, Hey, what's up, Hammy? What's going on, man? And he's just like, and he completely like switches to that second gear. And it's kind of like that first, like, yeah, you're not, you're not, you're not at home anymore, guys. Yeah. Cause they think they're going to war to like, um, crack open a colon with the boys. Yeah. You know, like this, this is just like a, a fun macho thing that guys do together. Yeah. They're all excited. Cause they're just like, Oh, we'll come back. You know, cause you do have these soldiers who are marching out and like, people are just like, it's a parade. People are throwing stuff. You know, they, they, they think of all the accolades. Um, and so, so you got a good like thirty-ish minutes, really, before they like really hit the hit the hit the battlefield. Um, and once that happens, it it just shit all changes. I think the real moment is when you have one of the the guys from the group dies on the first thing that they do. Um, and you know they have the moment where they they the guy runs out and like gets the body and brings it back and the the veteran soldiers who are with them the veteran one of the veterans is just like why did you do that like he's dead like just leave him and they're like it's my friend and he's like you almost ki- you almost killed yourself like doing that that's a corpse just you know toss it to the side um and then you have the long sequence where they're they're finally in a bunker and they're just kind of there and it, that's when it starts to kind of become like the reality starts to set in with them um and I, I remember just when I was watching, and so it all leads, you have this moment where some of the veterans as well as the, the, the people we've been following the whole movie are sitting around like just kind of talking because they're in between um, tours into the, into the trenches. Um, and like, you know, they're joking. The, the one veteran has this great line where he's talking about like how war should be where the Kings and their cabinets like go into a field and like dress to their underwear and just like, you know, attack each other until one of them, you know, prevails. Yeah. Like, he's just like that, like, that's what it should be. I don't know why, you know, and they just have this like really like, like long conversation about like what, like I, they're like, I have nothing against the English. I have nothing against the French, the French. They've done nothing to me. The first time I met one, they were on the battlefield. Like, why do I, why do I care about this pretty much? Well, world war one is kind of a famously confusing war to, to really pinpoint like what was the cause of World War One, um, and I don't feel like I am well Duke equipped Ferdinand. to answer that question at all. <laughs> yeah, um, somebody shot somebody, and then all of a sudden, like the dominoes started to fall, and everybody was fighting everybody, and and that um, really comes across in this movie too. It doesn't really seem like anybody uh, knows what they're fighting for, or really cares um, what they're fighting for. Um, they were just sort of suckered into it by this. Uh, jingoistic uh, teacher which like as a quick side note is very much a thing that still happens now like not not exactly with teachers uh, uh, 
kind of getting up on a on a stump and like telling their their students that they should go to war though i'm sure that they exist somewhere but the military goes to schools to recruit students and they do um select certain schools based on what schools they think would be uh, most likely to to get students so like i've i've worked at three different high schools over the course of my career and the one where i saw a lot of military presence was like a poor white conservative school where like these kids did not have a lot of other prospects um and so like hey get your college paid for you know live a great story be a hero but that's like a lie it's a trap you know and this movie exposes uh that trap in, um, in such a in, you know and in, in such a insightful and just like it, it really just cuts through you know it's it you know it, it doesn't i was thinking you know a good comparison movie to this in terms of like World War One anti-war movies is Paths of Glory. Um, and I was reading a, a review or like a comparison of the two and they're like, like not to rank one over the other, but uh, Paths of, of Glory is much more interested in like the bureaucracy. Like that gets kind of, that's more interested in like that side of things. And what I think, I, why I like, I think All Quiet on the Western Front a little bit more is because it's 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 completely focused on like the people it's actually directly affecting. Like the, like the people in the trenches, you know. Th- These people are not really exposed to the bureaucracy. Like they don't, they don't even get to see the, the bureaucracy. Which is kind of an annoying, you know, so for some people are probably familiar with the 2022 version which was nominated for an oscar last year um i I remember i think i mentioned it when i talked about it from tiff the director uh of it who's it's german it's a german production introduces it as as like the kind of almost as the first adaptation of this and i'm just like bud there's been two and the first one sorry is better than your movie um because it's such it's a movie that's so like influenced by 1917 by dunkirk by like this you know first person shooter ultra realism like the bullet you need to be like seeing the bullets coming at you to feel the impact of of like the heroin the harrowing harrowingness of this war um and like it just see like it, it honestly it, it and also it like has this complete other side plot with a Dan, with a character played by Daniel Brühl that's just completely about the bureaucracy and you're like yeah but that's not what this movie's about and that's why it's so effective about this one because it's not about the bullets coming towards you you have scenes where like they're sitting there fighting in the trenches but like the real impact is seeing what those what those teenagers look like in that classroom and what they're and wh- what they're at mentally midway through even like you know 25 50 percent through the movie and at the end like they you know the like there's there's something 50 times more harrowing about paul when he goes on leave and goes back home and is getting like lectured by these academics about whoa this is what the german army needs to be doing they need to be they got to take over paris they got to take over flanders they got to do this um and then he hears his, prof- you know, the professor going on again. Like, there's there's something much more impactful about that than having a bunch of bullets and like, you know, the the sound goes out and shit like that. Like this one, I feel like just conveys that message in a better way. Yeah, there's a very subtle evolution that um, the actor uh, Lou Ayers, who's playing Paul, goes through over the course of this movie. And I think part of it is maybe his affect, how he carries himself, what kind of facial expressions he makes, is kind of the default. Um, 
Um, and also it might be like the makeup department, like how they make his face appear more like weathered and aged by the end of the movie. But like when he comes back to his teacher's classroom and, uh, he sees this like new crop of kids all getting this rah, rah, let's go to war speech. Um, those kids, uh, look so much younger than him. Uh, and that may be a casting decision too, of like casting kids who look younger than the kids at the beginning of the movie. I was also kind of reminded of, uh, uh, Starship Troopers a little bit, um, which, which also has the, the teacher giving the speech to, to, to kids and, um, and like eventually younger and younger soldiers being sent to the front because the nation is kind of like running out of people. Um, but yeah, I don't really know where I'm going with that thought, but well, it's, it, you know. it, it does. Cause like, you, you know, when he comes back, it's, it's the very end of the movie when he comes back and you still have a couple veterans that, you know, he's been around. He, at this point, he's become a veteran to a degree, even though, you know, he's probably what, like, I think he's probably 21 at this point, I think 21, 22. Um, and they're bringing in all these just 18 year olds. And it's funny to see the role reversed at that point um, with these, these hungry uh, teenagers and, and kind of how Paul treats it. Um, but yeah, no I, no, I agree. I think that's what I like the most about it is that the evolution, it's not, the evolution is not showy. It's just the subtle, it's just this subtle shaving off of the pre of all the preconceptions of what he thought of like who he thought he was. It's just, it's just constantly like cutting away and cutting away and cutting away until the, and like the ending, I guess before, or I guess um, at one point they put music at the end, which is big disservice to the movie because the way it ends is like, I, like we, I described before, he's reaching for that butterfly. You see his hand, he's shot. You just see the hand go limp and then it is silent and it cuts to, the the you know you see the the um, people who you know the the kids at the beginning walking and it's superimposed on this graveyard and it's just this fucking harrowing like minute and a half of in silence silence. yeah and then fade to black pause the end like they do all the credits up front which i guess was normal in 1930 but the movie just kind of like leaves you to sit with that feeling which is really bold I yeah think. i mean it's again um, like you think it, it, i just kind of think about it in the same you know in the way in the in the updated version and maybe i need to read the book maybe this is true to the book i don't know um but you have like this kind of rogue general to a degree which feels also kind of like they're like dipping in the paths of glory to also where you have this rogue general who it's like the war is over and the general's just like fuck that no we're you know we're not going home until we've we've done it and sends all the troop the german troops into the, you know to fight and even though the, the french are over there like no wait we're done we're done they they're just like well they're attacking us now so um, and Paul, the, the Paul character dies there where they're just having this un- completely unnecessary battle. Um, but I feel, you know, I feel like that message is, is, is the, the unnecessariness of it didn't need, like, like that's conveyed. Um, and, you know, to circle back around to this thudding note that the movie ends on, um, I think that, and maybe you could speak to this and how it's done in the most recent All Quiet on Western Front movie. But I think that more modern war films tend to end on a note that's like, 
And that's why we respect the sacrifices that our veterans made. You know, like, uh, this is why they're heroes. And this movie doesn't really present Paul or anybody else as a hero. It's more of like the way in which they are exploited by this evil system. Um, and even when he's back home after he gets granted leave, like, he is so like cut off from the rest of the world and like psychologically scarred and unable to uh, connect with anybody else who hasn't had the experiences that he's had that like even freedom from it isn't relief like he's just kind of like stuck with this thing forever yeah and he says as much you know when he gets back to uh uh to the two veterans so i'm i'm what's the 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 main the main guy the main kind cat cat yeah cat the main the main like veteran guy who they really kind of latch on to um he says as much you know it's just kind of like you know i got home and uh, you know they haven't seen what we've seen they haven't been in what we've seen um they also treat in the 2020 the the ending is 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 like like i said it's just him getting shot it's like this really gruesome battle sequence that was again unnecessary he gets killed and that's kind of where it ends um but uh the the cat's character also is treated is just kind of treated in such a different way that one like that that cat is cats is like just looking for a way to get killed and so they have this thing where um earlier in the movie paul and cats have gone and cat steals this um steals some food from this farmer and like they barely escape but they get out of there and it's kind of this moment for them that kind of bonds them and at the end of it uh, at the end of the, the new one they have they do the same thing over again but this time you know cats doesn't make it he like you know he gets shot on the way out and that's how he dies is you know and it's kind of you know it was fine but then like rewatching this one and the way cats dies again it just goes to like it's a it's it's a very subtle one like you just it, it's you he gets he gets kind of hit you can kind of tell something happened but paul's just come completely in his you know in his head talking and you don't know it until he, he carries him all the way back to the medical tent and lays them down and they're like well you didn't need to do that he's dead um and again like that's how rather than just the the new one just feels like it in in and I and I loop in 1917 and Dunkirk and even parts of Saving Private Ryan and other kind of more modern war movies where it just needs to kind of like shake it in your face and be like this is bad and and this is you know this is why they feel bad you know like stuff like that and I'm like this one again it's just it's it's not it's not showy it's just Paul Paul like who Paul is is just just being shaved away and it's just another cut it's just another wound that he's taking that at that you know he he the way he reacts he, he just kind of he doesn't really know how to really react it's kind of like when his friend dies earlier and he's just like yeah I just ran back like I didn't I, I, like I was like I don't know what to do I'm just I'm alive still what well, what can you do how can you react if you're life and existence in the system is just like a continuous stream of events like this and there's not really a way out of it um the movie is also not really much of a character study either um in the first 30 minutes to an hour of it i actually 
um, wasn't sure which characters I was supposed to be keeping track of because you're just kind of uh, seeing this big mass of, uh, of school kids um, then turned soldiers. And it's only after a bunch of them just die off that you have like a, a manageable enough number of characters to really um, like dig into uh, narratively. And maybe if when I go back and rewatch it eventually, I'll be able to kind of pick out um, Paul and what he's doing in those early sequences. Um, yeah, but I think I think I think Milestone does that on purpose though, because yeah, like it is just kind of this conglomerate. And then it just starts getting shaved off, and Paul just kind of stick. Paul finally just kind of sticks out. And again, that's a difference from the the new one, which immediately identifies Paul as the person you're following. That one's also annoying because it spends about five minutes in town, and then immediately is moving into into the and it's not even in basic training. It immediately goes to the battlefield. You're you're in the shit. You're in the shit in like fifteen minutes, which I felt like is such a disservice to like how like. Like that set that thirty minutes of setup that you have to have in order to like make the other stuff really really stick with but you. But that movie is also fairly long, like this one is. It's an it's an hundred and forty seven minutes. So is it just like way more battle sequences? Because this one only really has two or three. It that that one does not have as many of like the kind of interpersonal moments that you get in this one and like i said it adds an entirely uh sec you know second side plot with this daniel Bruhl bureau uh, bureaucrat who's trying to you know negotiate the end of the war and so then you're you're leaving like paul and that whole story to go to for for the most part of the movie on this train with the french leader where the german and french are trying to like negotiate this 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 end of the war um, that just kind of that again. It's like that's not. I don't care. That's not. That's not what the movie's about. Um, and so, yeah. No, I. I think. And I think this one, like the the like the the war sequences are so harrowing. Harrowing, and the people, you know, these people that you follow die, and really, there's not too much fanfare with it. You also just have when the people not necessarily even die, but like you think about. Um, the Albert, his friend Albert, who they both get hurt when that um, when the mortars fall, um, when they're leaving the town. Paul, both Paul and Albert get hurt, and Paul like just has kind of a hemorrhage on the side, um, and leaves. He thinks he's going to like the room where everybody goes to die, so he kind of goes off for a while, and but eventually returns. And in the meantime, Albert realizes that his leg's been cut off, and like that whole that whole sequence and just like the kind of you see Paul just kind of look at him and leave and you see Albert holding this photo, the two of them like in uniform and just kind of has this like, like that's just, he's not going to see him again because Paul dies, but also just this, this kind of rupture between, you know, you had these really close friends who all made this joint decision together to like do this. And now they're disjointed because they're either dead or, they've been you know complete their lives have been completely changed because they've lost a leg or they've been you know sent home or something like that right i'm also thinking of the moment where paul is stuck in a trench or or you know just like a hill in the battlefield um with a friend soldier soldier i think who um he has mortally wounded um and you just like 
are in there with them for a really long time as Paul watches this soldier slowly die um, and recognizes the humanity of the other person, um, like makes all these promises to him, like I'm going to write your wife, I'm going to make sure she wants for nothing, um, I'm so sorry, please don't die. Um, and, you know, that's that's one reason why I don't really see this movie as being like exclusively in uh, like an anti-German movie or anything like that. It's just kind of the way in which all of these soldiers from all these countries are, are all kind of trapped under the same um, like system or or uh, uh, norm, I guess. Um, well, trapped under this just this stupid fucking war. Like what? Yeah. Like who yeah. is like they talk about it? Who is who's, who's what's 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 gain what gain are we getting out of this? You know, and they mention the uh, manufacturers, the arms manufacturers are making a lot of money off of it, um, which I thought was an interesting uh, thing to hear a character say in 1930. Yeah, and this and honestly, you know, just going back to why I really like this. World War One is such a one; it doesn't get as much attention as World War Two, especially like uh, thematically. Um, but it's just it's it's just such a grimy, really like hard to like just because you're in the trenches. You got mustard gas. You got um, barbed wire everywhere. You're literally fighting over like a few yards of land because their trenches are over there and your trenches are there. Like it's just this. It's just such a stupid war. It's so stupid because you're just fighting over these little tracts of land, and. You just have this stretch of no man's land with barbed wire and these mortar holes. And yeah, it's just, you know, you think about the first battle that you see and it's the French soldiers kind of like hauling it over and they're just getting peppered because they got the guns there and, they, and you just have like the front line just going dead, 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 dead. And then they kind of make a break and push the Germans and kill a bunch of Germans and push them back. But then the Germans push forward. It's just, you're just like, like again, like you, they ended up in the same goddamn place that they started, you know? But right. it, it feels it, existentially absurd. Like yeah. why is anyone doing any of this? It yeah. is like, you know, like you ended up in the same trench you were in, but you know, hundreds of people just died in the process. You know, it's, it's just, it is. It's, I think, but and I think it just kind of captures that really well. Um, and I think the movie's willingness to just stay in those moments of um, absurdity or bleakness uh, is is really admirable. I also really like the sequences that are like when they're kind of in the bunkers beneath the trenches. Um, I don't know if that's the right word, but um, like it's always just this master shot of like the entire bunker and you kind of get and they they last these scenes last a really long time. Um, and you really get the sense of these characters just going stir crazy, just being stuck in there with no food, nothing to do other than stare at each other, and just like hearing bombs going off above their heads constantly, knowing that like any one of them could like seal them in there forever or something. Um, and you know the movie is really willing to just like stay with those characters for long periods of time through that. You have the the, the first time they do it, where late in that where they're in there and the one guy like tries to make a run for it. One of, one of Paul's friends and they stop him and Paul brings him back in. And then like, he just kind of comes over and they're playing cards and he's just like, they're like, you want to play? And he's just like, yeah, I guess. What else <laughs> guess. is there to do? <laughs> like, what, is, what else is there to do? Like everybody else is losing their mind. We can't leave the bunker. Like might as well play cards. Um, any, any, anything, any last thoughts or anything on all, all quiet on the Western front? 
Um, I just want to reiterate how like beautifully bleak that last couple shots are. You know, I I wasn't really sure how this movie was going to end because it it just kind of meanders and follows Paul throughout his life and all the the various not ups and downs but different types of downs <laughs> he experiences, um, and for it to end on that like very poetic but but intensely tragic note of him reaching for this butterfly um you know which which gives a sense of like this vague interest that maybe he once had when he was a very different person before the war completely took over his life like he can't even have that he can't even like reach for and like inspect uh this butterfly without um getting shot unexpectedly um i think that even if the movie ended there and we didn't have like the superimposition of like the boys marching off to war with the graveyard behind them like that would be um enough of a of a dour note uh to end on um but well it's just like this like final like just reach for like oh this is something there's like like just beauty joy. nature like yeah no you can't have that not not when war is happening um uh, so yeah um it, it just seems like this total indictment of um you know any any uh, system in which you know rich powerful people send uh, uh powerless um and naive uh, young people off to their deaths um it i, I really uh, thought it was powerful yeah no i i think it's definitely I, I highly recommend it. It's one like I like we said at the beginning. Like it is just a a the the remasters and and revital. You know the the way they've revital uh re, you know revitalized the film. Like it's beautiful. It's such a beautiful. It's a very. It feels very modern. Um, I don't think I think it's one even though it's from nineteen thirty that modern audiences could watch and not really miss a beat on. It's it doesn't feel like it's not the jazz singer again. Like that that you know is just kind of. You're, it's there for the novelty of it um this one this one again it's made three years later and sounds amazing not only just the dialogue like the just the the dialogue between uh people but also like we were talking about before the i mean the sounds of the bombs the sounds of the mortars the sounds of just the the bodies and knives and guns in the trenches like the mud like you just you really feel this movie um in a way that just kind of reminds you just how how useful like just basic basic cinematic tenets can be used like again like you know i i like dunkirk i wasn't super hot on the new quiet on the western front or 1917 but i feel like all three of those movies just really lean on uh lean on spectacle kind of more on spectacle and these more modern um advances to kind of like really like you know they want you like almost with like a like a thing over your head just like experiencing it and you're like i don't know i I felt like i experienced the hell out of this movie um and And just because it is closer to when it actually happened and probably involved people who actually lived it um i think makes it a more um powerful like artifact of that experience than any sort of modern attempt of like recreating it i don't know yeah no i definitely agree i think you know it the 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 more like kind of a modern 
a modern version that I think is relatively close is like Billy Lynn's long halftime walk, the Ang Lee movie, um, which is, you know, it's covering the Iraq war um, pretty close to, you know, pretty, it it came out just, you know, relatively recently. So um, it's pretty close to that. I mean, I think that's a good, that's a close comparison there in terms of, which is also like reckoning with like the coming home from, from battle to a degree. Um, but, uh, no, all quiet on the Western front front highly recommend. Like I said, there's a free, really, really nice transfer of it on archive.org if you would like to watch it. But, um, yeah, no, I think definitely check. I mean, especially if you're fans of like the movies like Dunkirk and 1917, like these more modern, I think you should go back and watch this one and kind of appreciate a, a classic that definitely set the, set the field for not only those three, but like saving private Ryan and really, most war i feel like most war movies and like how they're how they're portrayed can you think of other war movies from around this time i don't know if i can think of anything uh that predates this that is as uh big of a name Mm, not off the top of my head i feel like there had well i mean i don't know if we're gonna count like civil war sequences from like birth of a nation and, and movies like that yeah but that shit sucks again it also sucks yeah no again it's but i'm just like saying like war being portrayed on film i probably there's probably like i feel like there's probably some from the american revolution or not the american revolution the civil war because that was pretty close in america um but no i don't know like i at least off the top of my head i can't think of a of a war movie yeah me neither this feels kind of foundational in that way. I mean, to a degree, you can you can. When did uh, when did uh, the uh, the general come out? General is nineteen twenty six. So that's that that doesn't have the scope, yeah. but still, like in terms of like kind of like back. or the tone <laughs> or the tone. Um, Wings is nineteen twenty seven. Yeah. I haven't seen Wings, um, though it also doesn't seem nearly as bleak. As All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, hold on, I'm looking to see if there's anything else. Um, bunch of stuff that looks vaguely familiar. Um, the Last Command, The Enemy. Um, yeah, th- this seems like a, a pretty big one to watch if you're a fan of war movies at all. Yeah, and this one, this one, the Oscar, surprisingly not Best Picture, but. Uh, Best director in production, which is fair. <laughs> it's, it's just fair. Um, all right. Well, that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary, and on letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary, where we list all the movies that we talked about in this episode. If you would like to support the show, um, we talked a little bit last week, you know, if you want to see film theory and chill come back, things like that. Um, so think about supporting the Patreon. It's, you can literally do it for a dollar. Plus you get to pick a, pick a movie for us to watch. So, um, I mean, come on. Uh, but thank you to our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsom, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Marsathi, and Tyler Chandler. Thank you so much for your patronage. Next week, we're going to be... Con- or ne- next week, no, next episode. Uh, we're going to be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1945's Children of Paradise, the French film by Marcel Carnet, which I honestly don't know too much about, so... The 1940s is a decade that uh, we have struggled to 
pick like uh, high profile titles for for the last several years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We will find a hidden so gem be, I'm, next I'm, I'm, time. Yeah, definitely. Until then, thanks y'all for listening. We'll see you next episode.